he sat across from me and he said, Scott, I, I just don't know if I can take anymore. I don't know if I can take another week working at home. I don't know if I can take another semester of schooling my kids at home. I don't know if I can take another Zoom call. I don't know if I can take another time in the grocery store trying to go down the lane the right way with my mask on. I I don't know if I can take losing another friend to a battle over politics. I don't know if I can take another scroll through the dumpster fire that is my Facebook feed. I don't know if I can take another breaking news alert. I don't know if I can take another event that I was looking forward to canceled. I don't know if I can take another vacation being rescheduled. I don't know if I can take it. You say, Scott, who is this friend that you are talking to? Well, it's a little bit of you, and 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 I kind of put them all together. Because I think we can all relate to the experience that is the yo-yo of emotions that this year has been. I think we can all relate to having high highs and low lows. I think we've all had times where we said to a family member or to a friend, enough, I've had enough. And if you're like me, that conversation has even spilled over into the conversation you have every day with God. There have been multiple times this year where if I'm really honest, in my time with the Lord in prayer, I've said these three words. God, enough already. Enough. God, I just had enough. And I think that's a really human prayer. I think that's a really honest prayer. And I don't know what God has said to you if you've said this. All I can tell you is what's happened in my time with the Lord. But there have been multiple moments where I cried out to God enough already about any number of things. And you know what I've sensed God say to me? And again, this is just me. I'm not telling you this is what he says to me. This is just me. But multiple times when I've said this phrase to God, God has said this back in return. But I'm not done yet. <laughs> and I've received that with humility and surrender and total faith. I mean that sarcastically. I, I, I didn't. I said, God, really? I've had enough. And God said, yeah, but Scott, what I am doing is not finished yet. And I want the words of Philippians 1 to be fulfilled in my life, where Paul promises that what God starts, he finishes. Paul in Philippians 1, 6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. But Paul doesn't always tell us about what happens on the road to completion. And that it's at multiple points, we say enough. So I wanted to start there today in a really honest place as we dive into this text. Because as I was reading and preparing this message this week, I felt like what James shared with us just jumped off the page in light of our experiences in 2020. And as I try to summarize his Words that we're going to dive into today with our big idea. Here's what I sense James saying to us across 2,000 years. Here's what the Spirit was speaking to me. That life is more fragile when we're trying to control it 
And life is more secure when we're focused on trusting God with it. If, you, if this year has felt fragile to you, if 2020 could be set up in a word and it's fragile, then that may be because you were trying to control it. In my experience, life is more secure when we're focused on trusting God with it. And this is where we're going to spend our time today. If you're new to Cornerstone, as Pastor Josh mentioned, we're in a series this summer on the book of James, and we can see the end. Now this is week nine. We'll wrap up this series in two Sundays. We're almost to the end of this little book that, man, packs a punch. James has been all up in my business all summer. He's been messing with me, with the Holy Spirit, tag-teaming me. And he's been leading me, and I hopefully leading all of us, into some practical wisdom for life's adventures. And today, we're going to finish up chapter 4 and start into the last chapter, chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it up or turn it on and head towards the back of your Bible. If you hit Hebrews, you're almost there. If you get to 1 Peter, you've gone too far. James is nestled between those two. And this book, written by the half-brother of Jesus, has been our companion this summer. And while you're turning there, I just want to mention one thing that I forgot in the ministry highlights section of the service earlier. We want to acknowledge that there are some of you who either have come or are thinking about coming here to the Performing Arts Center on Sunday morning who may have a medical condition that prevents you from wearing a mask. And we want to be sensitive to that. But I want to be totally transparent. We've had some people who've come who've tried to mislead us about their medical condition because they just didn't want to wear a mask. And so to try to decipher between who's telling the truth and frankly, who's not, we want to encourage you that if you want to come and you've got a medical condition, if you could just bring us some sign from your doctor that you're not supposed to wear a mask, then we would love to welcome you and not require you to wear a mask. I hate to have to say this. We tried to go with the honor system, but frankly, some people have violated the honor system, and so we're going to have to ask you to bring us some evidence that you need it. It's not that we don't trust you. It's just that we're a little bit cynical because of what we've experienced already. It's a little bit awkward to say that, but I always try to lean into vulnerability with you, and so I'm going to do that here. So, Hard segue, but let's jump into the text for today, James 4, 13 through 5, 6. And if you're here in the room today, would you stand for the honor of the reading of God's word today? James 4 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. See, I told you this is relevant. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
Lovely idea for nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Heavenly Father, I pray that through your word today and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would see clearly the truth. I pray that we would see clearly our own lives and we would see clearly what you want us to do. And selfishly, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, as we unpack those verses from James 4 and James 5, I think there are three things here that reveal to us about what God is concerned with today. Now, I think words and their meaning are important. Let me just tell you really clearly that that when I use the word concerned there, I mean it in a very specific way. Sometimes when when we use the word concern, we, we mean worried or anxious or bothered or kind of unsettled about things. But here's the thing. God does not experience those things. God has never worried a second of his existence. God has never been anxious a moment of his existence. The word concerned can also mean cares about, matters, and is focused on. And that's why I, what I'm using when I say that there's three things God is concerned with today. There's three things that God cares about, that matters to him, and that he is focused on. And here's the first one that James shares with us in the text. God is not against us making plans. God is concerned with us remembering that only he is sovereign over plans. It's the first thing I think God is concerned about that's revealed from this text. And you might think from reading this text on first blush that God is anti-plan, but he is not. But he's wanting us to remember something important that we tend to forget. In James 4, here's what he says. James says, come now. And, and come now is, is almost like he's saying, come on, guys. Come on. Listen up. Like, you should know this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If you were here as a part of Cornerstone last summer, Last summer, we spent the whole summer in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, in the middle of your Bible, has a repeated phrase over and over again that is this line here that James is quoting, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Again and again, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanity, life is vanity. That word for vanity is mist. It's, it's fleeting. And what James is trying to say to his audience is he's trying to say, hey, you are not in charge of your life. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're here for a little time and then you vanish. So then you ought to live like that and plan like that and look towards the future with that kind of humility. He basically breaks down here the the way that these people live that I think we often live. 
He says, hey, you have a timetable. You say today or tomorrow, we're going to go do this. You have a location in mind. We're going to go to such and such a city. You have a schedule. We're going to spend a year there. You have a plan determined. We're going to do business there. And then there's a conclusion that you've already set in your mind. We're going to make a profit. And that is the plan that these people that James is writing to are living. They've got a timetable, a location, a schedule, a plan, and a conclusion. They've got it all mapped out. The only problem is, James says, is that you're a mist. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So don't, it's not again, hey, don't, don't make a plan, but, but remember that even as you plan, you are not in control of everything that would be required for that plan to happen. So be humble. Make a plan, but remember that God is sovereign over your plan, and so hold your hand, hold your plan open-handedly. He continues. He says, instead of saying all these things, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, the way you typically live, you're boasting in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, I know many of us have heard the cliche, well, if if it's God's will, we'll do that, or if God allows, we'll do that. And some of us, myself included, if there is a cliche that people use, I try to avoid it. But here's the thing. It's still true. Even if it's overused and it's hackneyed and cliched, it's true. I'm not in charge of tomorrow and neither are you. And so we got to say, look, I'm planning this as if God allows it, we'll do this. Just as a reminder to our spirits that he is sovereign and we are not, that he is forever and our life on earth is a mist. I said to you, this passage feels incredibly relevant in 2020 because we have had so many plans canceled. That's so many events that we had tickets for, or we had hotels lined up for, or we had things, you know, mapped out for, canceled. School, vacations, trips, meetings, even gathering physically as a church. We've all experienced this. And we've all experienced the thing that God wants to do through this. Again, I'm not saying that God is the origin of the coronavirus. But I know one thing for sure. He doesn't want to waste it. He wants it to matter in our lives. He wants us to learn and grow through it. And so what is God teaching us through us through this? Well, I love what Tony Evans says. He says, God's kingdom is assured and my kingdom is uncertain. God's kingdom is the one that's assured, it's constant, it is true, it will not change, but your kingdom and my kingdom are constantly uncertain, and we ought to live with that awareness and reality every day. One of the things that I've learned this year in in 2020 is that many times when I've gotten wound up, stressed and frustrated at what is changing and what is being canceled and what is outside of my control, I have realized that I'm tense in my body. I've realized at times that I'm not even taking full breaths. Friends, my wife, I have to say, Scott, breathe. Just breathe. Because I'm all wound up from all of this control. 
And so for me, there is a physical practice that I have started engaging again in this season. Patrick, if you want to advance it one slide. And it is the difference between this and this. Multiple times a day, your pastor, your friend, has to pause, close his eyes, and unclench my fists. Because I forget that my plans are not sovereign. That I am not in control, and that if my life is feeling fragile... It's because I'm trying to live it the wrong way. And what James wants us to see in this first section of chapter four that we're looking at today is that God is not against you making plans. He's not against us making plans. He wants us to remember that he is the one who is sovereign over that plans. So we ought to live open-handedly with the plans that we make. Here's where he goes next, James 4, 17 back in the text. James says, so in light of all of this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Second thing God is concerned with in these times is that God is concerned about every opportunity we have to obey. God is concerned with every opportunity we have to obey. Now, whenever you talk about sin, I think many of us go to a place mentally and it is the lists of do's and don'ts. It is the list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. These are all sins. Don't do those things. You know, those those sins that are the don't things are are what the scriptures uh, often describe or writers describe as sins of commission. You're committing a sin. You're doing the thing that you're not supposed to do. But there are actually two categories of sin in the Bible. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. And it is the second category that James is talking about here at the end of James 4. When I commit a sin, a sin of commission, I do something that dishonors God, that is disobedient to him, that hurts me or someone else, violates his holiness, his righteousness, his law. That's a sin of commission. But a sin of omission is different. And here's one way I define a sin of omission. You did wrong because you didn't do what was right. That's a sin of omission. I had an opportunity to do the right thing, and I didn't do it. Therefore, I did the wrong thing. Are you following me? That's a sin of omission. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus harps on the sin of omission. In fact, one of his most famous teachings is all about the sin of omission. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this story, a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a dangerous road. On that road, he gets beaten by robbers who physically wound him and take all of his things. They leave him for dead. Well, next in the story, two religious figures show up and they literally walk around the man and offer him no assistance. The third person shows up who is a Samaritan. And if this story was being told in an evangelical church this morning, I would tell the story as if the third person was not a 
a Samaritan, but someone who was a member of Antifa or a Muslim terrorist or someone who was part of the ACLU or Planned Parenthood. And that person, unlike the religious persons, stop, renders aid, takes him to a place where he can be cared for, pays for him, and then says, if anything else comes up, I'll come back and pay his tab. Jesus says, who was the neighbor in the story? And his audience says, well, the one who helped. And he says, go and do likewise. The first two are the villains in the story. What did they do? Nothing. And that was the problem. Later on in Matthew 25, in one of the most sobering things that Jesus shares, he talks about the sheep and the goats. And he says that in the last days, on the day of judgment, that we will be separated sheep and goats. And those who are the goats who are sent away from the Lord's presence will say to Jesus, Jesus, when did we not do what we were supposed to do? And Jesus says to them, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And they're like, Jesus, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you homeless? When did we see you thirsty? And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these or didn't do, you did for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The sin of omission. And so God is concerned not just with the opportunities we have to do wrong. He is concerned with the opportunities we have to do right. And many of us have this idea that Christianity is a long do not list. When in actuality, it is an opportunity in every arena and every avenue of life to do the right thing to honor God with our lives. And some of you go, Scott, if you keep going here, I'm going to start feeling a ton of regret because there are so many missed opportunities in my past. Yeah, that's what happens. The older you get, the more missed opportunities you you can look back on. But by looking back on them, the one thing I can guarantee you is you'll miss the opportunity standing right in front of you. And so we can focus on the opportunities we've lost or we can focus on the opportunities that God is giving us. And let me tell you something about opportunity. Often when God invites you into an opportunity like this, it is going to look like an interruption to your plans. In my experience, God does not send invites a week ahead like my meetings on Google Calendar. God doesn't send me a request for a meeting and ask me to accept months in advance to hold that slot. So often when God shows up in my life, his invitation to me looks like an interruption to what I thought I was going to do, what I thought was important. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I nail all of them because mostly I don't. And one of the ones that's been hardest for me is with my kids. My wife and I spent 10 weeks this spring at home, both working full-time and homeschooling our kids, which meant that many times I was up late at night trying to get work done to make a deadline for somebody who was counting on me. And many nights, my twins, who are five, almost six, would decide that they wanted to snuggle before they went to bed. And my reaction wasn't always a good, loving father. It's frustration. I spent all day with you helping you do your schoolwork. Now I'm trying to get some work done. Somebody's counting on me. I I don't have time to snuggle. 
And many times I missed the opportunity, but there were some moments where I paused in the interruption. And I remember that their brother was eight and he's already in bed asleep. And he doesn't ask for nearly as many snuggles as my five-year-olds do. And I said, this isn't going to last very long. Would I rather spend an hour doing that and stay up an hour later or get up an hour earlier or say I'm sorry to that person because I was a little bit late on the deadline or would I rather miss this moment? That's how I'm learning this. That's how I'm failing through this. And if you're frustrated that God keeps interrupting your plans, just remember his invitations often look like interruptions. And he wants you to seize every opportunity to do right and to do good. Let's finish off James's word to us today from James 5. He says, come now, which again is like, guys, you should know this by now. Come on, listen. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The third thing that God is concerned about is that God is concerned with us treating wealth as a resource, not trusting in it as a source. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference between treating your wealth as a resource and trusting in your wealth as a source. You say, Scott, what's the difference? Well, when money is a resource for you, you remember that God is the provider of that resource, and he is, in fact, the source. God is the source of your security. God is the source of provision, and he's merely put this resource in your hand. That's very different than trusting in money as a source, because when you trust in money as a source, your temptation is to find security in yourself to find security in your stuff, to try to secure your future. This is the way that we live most of the time. This is why we react so negatively to bumps and interruptions in our plans. And this is the reason why for many of us, this year has felt so fragile because we're treating money as a source. If I were to try to talk to a school of fish about what water is, be very difficult. Because that's the only thing they've known for their whole lives. Not only do they not speak English, but water is literally the world they swim in. And it's somewhat similar for me to talk to you about materialism and greed. Because from the moment you were born, it is the water you have swum in or swam in. I'm not sure how to do the past tense of that correctly. But it is your world. It is my world. It is inescapable. 
And from the moment you were aware, you were surrounded by this idea that your security and your future would only be safe if you had this money that was this source of security. And all of us, no matter how holy we think we are, are vulnerable to this because it is the water we swim in. And whether it's materialism and greed with money or materialism and greed with experiences or materialism and greed with stuff, we all struggle with it, myself included. Late last year, my wife and I got an invitation to go to a wedding in Cancun. I know it's a tough invitation to get. We really prayed over it and asked the Lord if he wanted us to go to Cancun. You know, we, we sought God. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, we said yes. <laughs> And we, and we booked our flights, and we got a hotel. We managed to get childcare for our kids over a five-day time, which is not easy, with three different people. I mean, it was, a, it was an incredible plan. Did I tell you when the wedding was supposed to be? It's supposed to be the first weekend in April. It got canceled. And not only was I sad for my friends who had to postpone their wedding, I was depressed way more than I should have been. I mean, I was really depressed. I mean, I was in a really dark place when I finally realized that the wedding wasn't going to happen. And I asked myself, why am I so bummed about this? Why am I so frustrated? And I realized that this wedding had no longer been about the event. It was about what I was looking forward to when I went. I needed relief. I needed a break. I needed to disconnect. And as I began to recognize just how far down this cancellation had sent me, I felt like God began to whisper something to me. And here's what I heard that I was looking for the Mexico trip for rest rather than Jesus. I was looking to the trip for something that only God could give. Now again, please hear me clearly. I'm not against going to Mexico for a wedding. And when they reschedule it, I will gladly say yes to that invitation. But I was looking to that trip to do something for my soul that only God could do. And that trip for me had become an idol in my life. Something to which I was looking for what only God could give. And James speaks directly to this, to a wealthy crowd. And I think all of us would fit that category by the world's standards. And he ends this passage with something that I don't want to overlook. What James says is that when we have idols in our lives and we're not aware of them, those idols can produce injustice. The idols in our lives and the idols in our cultures can actually be the source of profound injustice. In James 5, 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, they actually did the work which you kept back by fraud. So he's saying, you're trusting in your wealth and not me, 
and you're actually withholding the wealth you should pay to people for the work that they do by defrauding them, those wages, those laborers are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, there's a difference between sin and injustice. Sin is what's wrong in us, and injustice is what's wrong between us. And this sin that happened when these people defrauded their workers of the wealth they had actually earned and kept it back, that began to produce injustice. And in this situation, it's an economic injustice. And James says here, speaking on behalf of God, that those wages and those laborers are crying out to him, and that cry has reached the ears of God. And it's wrong. Now, I know the word justice is a word that's gotten politicized in our culture. But you know what's even sadder than the fact that the word justice has gotten politicized? Here's what's saddest to me. For me, it's sad when the people most broken by injustice in our world are not the people of God. The loudest voice for justice in our culture should not be any group other than the people of God. No matter what party you are registered with. You say, Scott, why is that? It's because this, if you go home today and open up a concordance or go to the back of your Bible, or even just type into Google Bible verses about justice. Make sure you have a minute. Because you're going to be there for a minute. The Bible is overflowing with truth about the importance of justice and the wrong of injustice. And James ends this section reminding us that we should be the people who care about justice the most because we are the people of the God who cares about it. And he's saying right here, make sure that in carrying out your life, you carry it out justly. So you say, Scott, what do we do do with this? How do we live it out? Well, I have some next steps for you. Here's the first one. If you have a phone and you use reminders or calendars or things to trip you up and remind you to do the things you should do, then I want you to set a daily time on your phone, on your calendar to open your hands. I've got two times because I struggle with this this much at 10 and two. And on my phone at 10 and two, it says pause for one minute. And I put everything away. I close my eyes. Typically, my hands are already clenched. I don't need to do that. And I just take a deep breath. And I unclench my fist. And I give to Jesus whatever it is that I was clenching my fists around. And so I want to encourage you to set a daily time to open your hands. To go from this to this. Number two, I want you to rename interruptions in your life by calling them invitations. Some of you have started renaming when, when you say, I have to do something, you're like, nope, I don't have to, I get to. In the same way that we've been teaching you to do that, when you have an interruption, go, I didn't get interrupted today, I got invited. Maybe even parents, as some of you are preparing for your kids to at least start school at home. You might practice this. 
that those little small versions of you that you spend your life fighting with and cajoling to do what they should do, they're not interruptions, they're invitations. And then number three, I want to encourage you to ask for help or encouragement where you're saying enough. The beginning of the message I mentioned, you know, is there a place where you're just saying, I've had enough? Well, I want to encourage you in that place where you're saying that you've had enough, I want you to ask somebody else for help with that. Last week, I, I went out in the lobby and I was talking to somebody who attends Cornerstone, and she was talking about a place in her life where she's been saying enough. And she said, I wouldn't have survived that if it hadn't been for my community group. I went two weeks ago and I just, bleh, you know, I just kind of vented to them about how much of enough I had with something. She said, I felt a little bit better, and they encouraged me. And then I came back last week, and they asked how I was going, and I kind of went, eh. Like it, was, it was there, but it wasn't as much. And she said, now I'm going back on Tuesday, and she said, I'm at peace. She said, all I did was I shared, and I asked them to encourage me. You know, there's a myth in our culture that says if you ask for help, it means you're weak. That couldn't be further from the truth. The people I admire the most, the people who have the most courage, the people who I think are the strongest are not those who can never ask for help. They are those who know enough to ask for help. Because asking for help and acknowledging your weakness is a sign of profound strength. So maybe today what you need to do is to acknowledge that, hey, in this place, I feel like I've had enough and I don't know what to do next with that. Can you help me? Can you encourage me? Maybe it's texting a friend. Maybe it's talking to somebody that you're watching with right now at home or here. Or maybe it's acknowledging that this season has put you in an isolated and lonely place and you need some community. We're getting ready to launch community groups in a few weeks and we would love to have you be a part of that. We'd love for you to send us a message or an email and let us know that you want to be a part of that. We'll add your name to that list. But just the act of asking for help and acknowledging it can change things. And remember, life is more fragile when we're trying to control it. And life is more secure when we're focused on trusting God with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredibly relevant reminder from James that though it was written 2,000 years ago, just rings accurate and specific to the moment that we're living in. God, I have a love-hate relationship with this book right now. I love it for the truth that it holds, and I hate the clarity and the light that it's showing on all of the places in my life that need to adjust and change because I'm not yet the person you want me to be. And God, I confess that so much of this year has been hard, not because I did it well, but because I tried to control the uncontrollable. I forgot the fact that you were sovereign and I was not. I lived with clenched fists and a tense heart. Instead of open hands, and a surrendered heart. And God, I think 
that I'm not that unique and that I'm not that alone in that. So would you guide us in this moment? Would you speak to our hearts and show us what the next right thing is that you want us to do based upon what you've shown us today? And we pray that you would lead us deeper into trust and surrender. If you're listening today, if you're watching today, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ with your life, it's the best decision I've ever made. And it's a decision you could make today. Simply just open your hands and pray a heartfelt, honest prayer. Jesus, I've been trying to control my life and live it my way. I want to trust my life to you both this moment and forever. I want to follow you. Would you lead me? Would you forgive my past and make me new? I surrender myself to you, Jesus. Amen.